And the good news is that does happen. We saw it in the past housing uh, crisis recession of 08 and 09. Now that wasn't a depression, that was a recession, but that was the years that Netflix and Beats by Dre and Lululemon and Starbucks and Apple exploded. So people did make choices to say, I'm gonna spend on those luxuries, um, but you know, you have to be pretty exceptional. Those are the best brands in the world, right? Um, and so I do think that you have to decide, are you gonna be the best in the world at what you do? Or are you gonna really get scaled back and super focused and be the most efficient or the most pragmatic at its delivery so that people choose you over alternatives? Welcome back to Poolside Podcast. This is episode number 106 and I'm your host, Rachel Anthony. Happy Tuesday. I hope everybody is enjoying their time at home and at least the weather is better so we can work outside on our decks or patios. That makes everything a little bit easier, although I find that my computer overheats if I sit out there too long. So I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to work that into an eight hour workday outside. But this is the first episode that we are talking about COVID and how it is impacting businesses and brands. I kept it to a business perspective, obviously, because that's what this podcast is about. And this is the first episode because just like a lot of people, I didn't realize how long this was going to last. And now that there is a huge impact on everybody and everything in this world, I think it's worth having these conversations, especially as business owners and people who have been laid off and just everybody need to rethink about the future and how we are going to move forward in this this coming year and for the years to come, because I think it's going to be super impactful. So today I have Chris Neeland on from Cult Collective. He is one of the co-founders and he talks about what Cult Collective is and what sets it apart as an agency from other agencies and how that translates into their their perspective on client work. He talks about what qualifies a cult-like brand and shares his insights on how business owners should pivot their own strategies to build a cult-like brand. And we talk about some of the classics like Coca-Cola, Apple, Nike, all of the ones that you know are the cult brands um, because the loyalty is insane. There's a reason why we are all, I mean, maybe not we are, personally, that I have all Apple products, even though sometimes they really frustrate me, but I couldn't even think about buying a different one. So we talk about that, and then we also talk about how COVID has impacted businesses and brands and what business owners should be doing right now to take advantage of the current climate. He mentions rethinking about what you're offering. Do you even like your job? Do you like what you're offering? Who's working for you? Can you do this with less people? Can you do this with less money? Is there campaigns that you've wanted to run, but you just haven't had the time? There's lots of suggestions and tips that he gives throughout this episode and I think it's just a great brain starter for thinking about what your business is and what you want it to be at the end of this. Um, Chris also defines what success means to him and why now is the perfect time to redefine what it means to you. This is a great episode as always I love talking about marketing and branding but also being able to tie it into the current situation and make it very relevant to basically everybody right now. So let's jump into it. Here is Chris. Do you want to start with introducing yourself and give us a fun fact about you? Uh, My name is Chris Neeland. I am the CEO of 
Cult Collective and uh, the co-founder of uh, The Gathering and uh, Communo.com. Uh, I've been in Calgary for 10 years now. And my fun fact is that when I was in college, I auditioned for David Letterman's Stupid Human Tricks. And if uh, we get to know each other well enough, I might even tell you what I tried to do. <laughs> On the next podcast, you have to reveal what the, what the trick was. <laughs> yes, it's, it's just embarrassing enough that uh, I like to say that I was on, but we didn't actually get on the show because he was moving at the time to NBC and uh, there was some intellectual property debates about whether that stunt went on. But I'm, I'm probably glad there's not footage of me on national television doing what I was <laughs> Your life could be a lot different right now if uh, if that happened. <laughs> yes. um, do you want to share with us what Call Collective is and where that idea came from and the journey of how you ended up uh, co-founding it? So Call Collective is an audience engagement agency, and uh, I am uh, both happy and sad that nobody really knows what that means. Um, I'm sad because. <laughs> wish that we were so wildly successful at it that there were thousands of audience engagement agencies and I'm happy uh, because it is it uh, provides us with differentiation and helps us stick out in a crate full of apples um, but an audience engagement firm is essentially a hybrid between a brand consultancy and an ad agency so um, brand consultancies uh, I think um, have some deficiencies when it comes to their execution and, and the delivery of the strategy. And an ad agency, I think, has an overemphasis on communication strategies to solve meaningful problems. So as an audience engagement firm, we specialize in understanding uh, the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of certain audiences and then helping brands create value propositions that will resonate. And so sometimes those include ad-like objects, websites, paid media, but uh, other times they deal with product development or service delivery or distribution or pricing strategies, basically what marketing used to be before we got overly fixated on discounts and mass media. Right. And what was the thought process um, for starting this? So where were you before and um, what were your thoughts around that when you're like, this is what the industry needs right now? So um, necessity is the mother of all invention, and uh, we were a fairly traditional communications uh, slash creative agency when we lost our largest account. And uh, we, we had a, um, a client concentration problem, meaning that we had one client that was responsible for a, an inappropriate amount of our revenue. So when that client went away, our agency basically had to scramble to decide what to uh, what do we do to stay alive? And um, I think we made the decision to use this disruption not to rebuild uh, what we were, not to just resell what we were already selling, but to rather reimagine what we actually wanted to do. Uh, you know, you've got to imagine this was in 2011. So, you know, the, the, the ad agency model was arguably 60 or 70 years old at that point. It hadn't really been significantly disrupted uh, despite, you know, the information age, mobile media, social marketing, et cetera. So uh, I think we just sat back and said, if we were going to start from scratch today with no baggage, 
would we build a different kind of business that had a different type of offering? And uh, that became the beginning of what was is now known as Cult Collective. Cool. And I mean, I've watched you guys. I used to work, um, maybe this is how we've like seen each other. I used to work for date night in the building. And okay. so um, yeah. I remember like walking up the, the stairs and looking at all the like brands and stuff. And so I followed you guys for a while. I think it's super cool. So it seems successful to me. So what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned with starting a company and starting an agency over the past few years? You know, I don't know that it was a lesson learned as much as it was a lesson applied. I've always known that things like positioning uh, really matter. And I think most uh, of my competitors or most people even in the creative digital marketing space are really poorly positioned. And, um, and so it's difficult for us to go to a brand and talk about how to improve their positioning if we ourselves are poorly positioning. So cults, um, everything from people being really uncomfortable with that name and that metaphor to the, the rationale behind it, um, I think really nicely positioned us. And we had received some advice back in the day that said a, a poorly positioned firm can't get a customer to cross the street to do business with them. They just are part of the noise versus a properly positioned firm will get somebody to get on an airplane and travel great distances in order to uh, react. And we see that in other places. We see pilgrimages to holy leaders in, in lands. We see people uh, inconvenience themselves for medical expertise, um, and but less so in the creative space. So we really kind of made it a goal of ours to, uh, to almost seem like, how inconvenient can we make it for clients to work with us um, to see, you know, we don't do RFPs as an example. We make clients come to our building uh, to close a deal versus we fly to them. Uh, we have a bunch of language and pricing that isn't completely intuitive. So it requires them to really sit down and let us walk them through how we arrive at things like performance-based compensation. So um, we don't do billable hours. We don't do timesheets. We don't do all the things that uh, typically made it easy to know how to work with a, a marketing service professional. Not because we wanted to be difficult, but because we wanted to stress test uh, our expertise. And are we as good as we hope to be or claim to be at doing one specific thing very well, which is to uh, help brands receive uh, irrational levels of audience engagement? And so. I, I think that, that the learning has been how far can you push because there's been times that we've overstepped. I remember one of the times my business partner had this fun idea about when somebody calls that we're like, hello, and they guess, is this cult? Like, how did you get this number? And like make, them, <laughs> make it really inconvenient or, you know, like at a speakeasy where you slide the little thing right. like, oh, you couldn't ever just walk in, but you have to know the password and that kind of thing. Those are examples of probably going too far. <laughs> uh, but I do think that, um, you know, it's easy to say that the easiest way to be irrelevant is trying to be everything to everybody. And yet most businesses that I see are so terrified of doing anything that might turn somebody off or God forbid offend somebody that they are pretty vanilla. And uh, we, we've enjoyed being sort of mint cherry pistachio chip and uh, <laughs> being quirky and very niche. Right. And would you say that social media has uh, played a part in that, that people are terrified now because they think if they do something, then social media will just explode on them? Um, have oh, you seen a difference in that? 
Yeah, and you would know this better than I, because we, we do less consulting with clients on their social media strategies, but um, we, we will frequently say things like, if you're worried about getting some complaints, let's not go down this path. You know, Nike created a firestorm when it put Colin Kaepernick in its ads. And they didn't do that to be intentionally um, provocative, but they did do that knowing that it was going to be controversial. I don't even know if they knew how controversial. You know, when, when Red Bull dropped Felix Baumgartner out of space, there was a very legitimate chance they're filming, they're live streaming the, the, the death fall of right. somebody that crashes into the earth, right? Um, so there is a certain courageousness that says the pros have to outweigh the cons, but what social media has really done for us is it has allowed us to tell our story or to put our point of view out there in a very low cost way um, so that people don't have to work too hard to really understand who we are and what we believe. They just have to start following us and you know, read some of our posts and that hopefully will be a get it factor. We're trying to have a different conversation. Right. And I guess if they don't get it, then they're not really the people that you need paying yeah. attention to you anyway. Exactly. Um, and so what would you say defines a cult brand or what is your general definition of what a cult brand is? And you already gave a couple examples like Nike and Red Bull, but what are some brands that are not doing it correctly that you have just to give examples to people? Um, a non-cult brand? A non-cult yeah. brand is pretty much open the newspaper flyer and any brand <laughs> in there um, would qualify. Um, a cult brand has a few attributes that we look for, and it's sometimes difficult to uh, assess if you're a privately held company. Like, to really know, you have to start rummaging through their underwear drawer a little bit, and so it's not always obvious, which is the reason why we started The Gathering, is it's easy for people to say Lego is an awesome brand. It may not be as obvious to know that the Harlem Globetrotters or Hootsuite or uh, Filson or these other brands that are either more regional or smaller. So we are on a bit of a journey to try to um, shine a spotlight on what good looks like. Um, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I, I sometimes fall into the temptation of showing what bad looks like as well. <laughs> it's easy to find some bad examples, but I would rather be known as being a cheerleader of the good versus a critic of the bad. But a cult brand is going to have an above average level of brand attachment. So there's an emotional uh, versus a transactional relationship going on. It's why people tattoo Harley onto their bodies is they want to be affiliated uh, with that brand. And that, again, is something that's tricky to measure. That's not the same as a customer satisfaction survey. That's not the same as a net promoter score. There's a very defined way that you get at uh, brand attachment. Um, they also uh, receive disproportionate benefit from word of mouth, or what we call brand advocacy. Um, so a good part of their business is um, generated from their fan base. Now I say a good part, not all. It's actually two of the things that people get wrong. They sometimes think cult brands don't advertise, and they do. Coca-Cola is one of the largest advertisers in the world, uh, and they're a cult brand. Um, but it's the, it's the reason for that advertising and it's the purpose of that advertising. You don't see Coca-Cola doing a lot of price and item uh, sales. You don't see Go, uh, GoPro or Red Bull doing a lot of price and item uh, sales. 
Uh, it's more about reinforcing the values of the business versus the value of the product. Um, along that lines, cult brands tend to spend less than their industry peers on advertising. So they don't spend zero and cult is not anti-advertising despite some people's popular belief. We just think it should be the last thing a brand does, not the first thing. Uh, the founder of Geek Squad once said that uh, advertising is a tax that brands pay for being unremarkable. So I think <laughs> the first thing you should do is decide how remarkable can we be? And then if there's still a delta between that and where you hope to go, then do some advertising, why not? Uh, cult brands tend to uh, enjoy higher margins. That margin is a result of two things. One, they discount less. Mediocre brands understand their mediocrity. And so in order to seem special, they try to be the cheapest. And so you'll see, you know, Old Navy or Bed Bath & Beyond bombarding you with coupons because they know they're basically selling stuff that you can get elsewhere. Uh, and some of that margin comes from internal productivity. Uh, it's actually probably been the most pleasant surprise over the past 10 years as we've studied cult brands is the emphasis on culture and internal engagement and cult brands simply do more with less. Uh, you know, the LA Lakers have the most dominant, they're one of the top four most successful sport US franchises like the Cowboys and the Yankees. And yet they have the smallest marketing team in the NBA. And so it's an example of if you get the right kinds of people who are properly engaged, they just do more with less. So you can make more money because your overhead's lower. Right. So those are, those are examples of some of the symptoms of what the good ones look like. And I think the bad ones are the largest spenders on advertising because they can't be special. They shout really loud. So they become unignorable by the volume as opposed to the substance of what, of what they're speaking about. And um, uh, like I mentioned, discounting. Uh, you know, if you think about most cult brands, Apple, Lululemon, Starbucks, they tend to be premium price point. They're not, they don't have to be. Southwest Airlines is a great example. WestJet is a good example of a cult brand that can be a lower cost provider. Uh, but it's uh, too many marketers default to um, trying to increase awareness or acquisition by screaming and bribing. And that's not the playbook of a cult brand. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. And for smaller businesses, because lots of people that listen to this podcast are small business owners, most of them local in Calgary. And so what would be just a few like things that they can do right now to maybe change their mindset to becoming a cult brand? Because I feel like people look at Apple and Nike and all these and they're like, well, we're not that big. Like it's just me or it's just me and like one other person. So how can someone um, change their brand of a small business into that path? Well, the small business owner has it easier. Um, you know, it's much harder for the big brands to stay special. Um, you know, somebody once quipped, how big do you get before you turn bad? And so um, a lot of the big cult brands are, are trying to keep that insurgent mentality and be the challenger brand and not become the bloated, um, you know, incumbent. Everybody wants to be Netflix. Nobody wants to be Blockbuster. So um, you're, it's a blessing for you to be tiny. The other thing is, remember what I said, cult brands spend less than their industry peers on advertising. So a lot of the smaller companies don't even have the luxury of spending anything on advertising. So it's not a handicap to, um, you know, versus as you get bigger. So um, you, you said it right there in your question about changing the mindset. Being a cult brand is a commitment of the, of the leader or of the owner. Do you want to be um, 
popular? Do you want to be successful? Do you want to be significant? Do you want to be cult-like, right? I mean, it's like, what's your actual objective? The majority of people that I talk to that say they want to be cult brands, I'm like, no, you don't. You're giving lip service because it sounds good, uh, it, but it's like everybody says, I want to be good looking or I want to be rich, but, um, you know, or maybe a better metaphor is people that say, um, uh, you know, I want to be fit. And it's like, do you? Because if you want to be fit, you're not going to eat that donut. You're going to go to the gym every day. And so saying it versus believing it and being committed to it are two very different things. And why people fall short of a cult-like status is rarely because of their category, never because of their cash flow. It's because of their lack of commitment to actually being special. Um, they're just kind of more content or they settle for, for a B versus going for the A because getting an A requires more effort uh, and a B is sometimes good enough. So it's actually one that drives me the most crazy. I spoke at the gathering two years ago about potential and um, I hate it when I see a business that has more potential than the business leader thinks that it does. So I'll, I'll name names. I'm not shy. Rocky Mountain Soap Company. I've looked at that company for eight years as a business that should have been lush, this you know, multi-billion dollar success story, but it was the, the true ambitions of the owners that were comfortable. It was a lifestyle brand. They got to have a nice little company in Canmore and raise their kids. And no harm, no foul, that's their prerogative. But then don't come to me and say, and they didn't, but you know, <laughs> um, don't come to me and say, I wanna be cult-like because it's like, you have all the ingredients to be far more special than you actually Right. And I think that's the difference between basically everything in life is really the effort that you're willing to put into it. Well, or the ambition. I'd say ambition first and then say, okay, do I really have the gut check moment to say, do I have the effort to get there? I just think there's too many people that have poor or very modest ambitions. And that's what I find sad because uh, I see a lot of raw potential that goes untapped. It's a tough thing to it's a tough thing to see in my kids. It's a tough thing to see in my friends. It's a tough thing to see in the businesses that I, I interact with. Right. And just to touch on the gathering a bit, because you did touch on it before we go into more COVID-related questions. Um, do you want to just explain what the gathering is, just for people who, I don't know why they've never heard of it, but if they've never heard of it, um, just what it is and what your intentions are with it. So the gathering is an annual coming together of the most enlightened brand leaders on the planet. It happens right here in our backyard. Well, I say here in our backyard. You're in my backyard. I don't know, how, I don't know where all your listeners live, but it's in Banff, Alberta at the uh, beautiful Banff Springs. It's in its uh, eighth or ninth year now. I think we just wrapped up year eight. Um, it is a chance to both celebrate brand stories that oftentimes go unheralded because these brands are not often winning, you know, Super Bowl commercial spots or cons lions. As an industry, we tend to over-index on celebrating creativity. And the gathering is a bit more of a celebration of a lifetime achievement award of a brand that has uh, um, achieved really enviable levels of fan adoration. Um, but it's not just a celebration. It's also an education. It's a chance to be inspired and learn from. So I often equate it to if you loved movies, getting a ticket to go to the Academy Awards would be pretty cool because the Academy Awards show is, is uh, exciting. 
but what if you could go for three days and talk to Steven Spielberg about the choices he made or talk to the producers or the actors about what went into that process, uh, then you would really be a pig in dirt at that point. And so the gatherings, if you really love branding and you really love marketing and you want to understand how these businesses achieved what they achieved, then it's a great way to get unprecedented access to some of the biggest brand leaders in the world. Right. It happens and every February. We hope it happens. This might be your segue to COVID because <laughs> we really got lucky, knock on wood, that it happened before the world went crazy. And uh, now we're trying to figure out how long are we going to stay crazy before we're able to uh, meet again. So normally it happens in February. And um, that's, our, that's our plan A still, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, I get that yeah. definitely. And it will be my segue, but I wanted to say that talking about the pilgrimage and people coming to calls, I would say that I've never been to the gathering. Um, I was going to go this past year, but I ended up being out of town. But I get FOMO every time I see anybody go there and seeing the brands that are there. So I think that is also part of the, not inconvenience that it's in Banff, but making people come to you to, to see this like collection of brands that you put together. Well, you know, our, our muse was a combination of South by Southwest and, and cons. I mean, there's nothing more inconvenient than going to the south of France and spending <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars for that experience. So we figured Banff was a was a short putt compared to the people that were already making that sort of a commitment. But what's really special about Banff, as opposed to say Vegas or New York or uh, places that have talked to us about moving the festival there, is that there's really nowhere else to go. And we really love the intimacy that happens at the gathering, and so. Um, when the speakers are done, they're not going to a Broadway show or some hot new restaurant or some, you know, live event downtown, you know, metropolitan area. It's Banff. So we, we hang out in the bar at the hotel or we hang out and, and uh, uh, there's an intimacy there where half of the, the magic is just the collisions that happen with some of your professional role models uh, because we're kind of sequestered together for three days. Right. No, it's super cool. So let's transition to our current climate of COVID. And I just want to get your opinion on the experience that you've had with Cult itself as a brand, and then what you've experienced with your clients and just how brands in general should be pivoting their marketing to stay relevant and connected so that when this is over, that they haven't just fallen off the face of the earth. Yeah, I think there's, I think we've noticed three phases so far. I think the first phase, I kind of equated to an earthquake. The first phase was the earth started shaking and everybody got under the desk or everybody got under a doorway and appropriately so. Like you gotta, uh, I, you know, I was telling clients like they're starting to worry about things where it was premature to worry about. It. Like if you were in an earthquake and your, your fancy vases were crashing, Now's not the time to start thinking about how you're going to replace those or you know, how else you're going to redecorate the room. It's like, stay safe until the earth stops shaking. And unfortunately, this virus thing, and, and I, I, I one part blame the virus and I one part blame our leader's response to the virus because I'm wildly frustrated with how most of the world has reacted. But they, you know, the aftershocks keep coming. And so uh, we don't even really know, is, the, is it over yet? You know, and, and there's just so much ambiguity around the, the uh, physical, uh, the pandemic part. Um, then the second uh, stage was the, um, 
okay, this is gonna be disruptive for a few months. We're shutting everything down. Never done that before. In the history of, you know, of, our, of our lifetimes, maybe even our country, um, I keep looking for metaphors of World War II and some of the crazy things that the government had to do to keep the country going during uh, a world war. But um, you know, certainly if you would have thought Here's what we're going to do. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the cruise line industry, if I'm in the hotel industry and you're like, okay, we're going to have to improve our, the way we clean the rooms. That's, that's a different response than, oh, you're not allowed to go out of the house. And so we've been all sort of forced into dealing with a lockdown that nobody was really anticipating. Uh, and again, the ambiguity for how long that's going to last is very detrimental. Um, but for me personally and for my clients, I think we do see past the virus and we do see past the lockdown, but what we don't know what to do with is 30 million unemployed. So uh, the, that's not, you know, the, the fine line between are we in a recession or are we in a depression? And, um, you know, some of the things that uh, shift in the consumer's mind that used to be luxuries and are now necessities is going to really challenge us because a lot of businesses thrived in an economic boom where there needed to be 14 ranch dressing choices or there needed to be 18 restaurants on 17th avenue or 16 car dealerships at deerfoot meadows but when when you get into a depression it's kind of either low price lowest price wins most convenient wins which is why amazon's probably going to become the first two trillion dollar company or a brand that has such affinity that people sacrifice for it. And the good news is that does happen. We saw it in the past housing uh, crisis recession of 08 and 09. Now that wasn't a depression, that was a recession, but that was the years that Netflix and Beats by Dre and Lululemon and Starbucks and Apple exploded. So people did make choices to say, I'm gonna spend on those luxuries um, but you know, you have to be pretty exceptional. Those are the best brands in the world, right? Um, and so I do think that you have to decide, are you gonna be the best in the world at what you do? Or are you gonna really get scaled back and super focused and be the most efficient or the most pragmatic at its delivery so that people choose you over alternatives? Right, and how do you, recommend people like we said the mindset for this how do you recommend them doing that what would your advice be for business owners who are now here and they have to decide how they want to to target people and talk to their audience and be there with the they don't want to talk about COVID anymore but still be there for their people and become more connected so that when people do have the money to spend or make those choices that they're the ones that they choose Probably my favorite thing about being a consultant versus an employee, because I was an employee the first half of my career, and is I think as a consultant, you say things to your boss that you never say as an employee. And employees learn that their self-preservation most of the time relies on agreeing with the boss versus a consultant, you find your value most of the time is disagreeing uh, with the boss and causing them to think differently. And my favorite conversations go back to that Geek Squad quote around remarkability. Um, listen, the capitalist societies like US and Canada are meritocracies. Um, and when you're in economic boom times, particularly prolonged economic boom times, which 
we were looking at probably at least the past 10 years has been economic boom. Um, it masks a whole bunch of problems. You kind of just are able to get away with things because the disposable income uh, and the population growth just allows you to get away with things. And when I sit down with people now, I talk about two things. Is your business remarkable enough to actually survive? Is your taco stand or your beauty shop or your dog walking service truly differentiated in a way that you can with a straight face say, people would be sad if it went away? Um, or are you just a pretty good burger or a pretty good you know, a music service or a pretty good uh, app, whatever you've got? So um, there's not gonna be as many survivors that are pretty good. You've got to be great. And I think that we, particularly when you work with ad agencies, what you do is you try to pretend that you're pretty good is great because you have a decent product with great advertising. Your story is great, but your product actually isn't. And so um, I think that's one of the conversations and, and maybe, you know, I remember one of the quotes from Steve Jobs was when he talked with uh, the Nike guy, the new CEO of Nike after Phil Knight, he says, you have some amazing products, but you have a lot of crappy products too. Why don't you just focus more on the good stuff? And that's exactly what Apple did. When Steve Jobs got back to Apple, he discontinued a huge part of the product portfolio and focused on iPads and iPods and iPhones. Um, so I do think that business owners should probably be counseled to do fewer, bigger, better things as opposed to trying to uh, overextend themselves into a bunch of stuff that they're average at. And then secondly, now's a wonderful time to do a gut check on do you even have the um, intestinal fortitude to fight this fight? I, now I know one of our businesses, Communo, deals with a lot of ad agency owners. And the reality was a lot of agency owners hated their jobs before this recession. They have what I call pre-existing conditions. They had entitled staff, they had lousy clients, they, had, they were maximizing their lines of credit to stay afloat, they were poorly positioned. And it's like, listen, you, you didn't like your job before. Why are you fighting so hard to keep it now? Why don't you just use this time to reinvent what you even do? Maybe you should retire early. Maybe now you should pursue a different line of work. Maybe you should now go back and get quote unquote a real job. Or maybe you had a real job and you got laid off. You should go into entrepreneurship because you hated being an employee anyway. So I think your first reaction is the wrong reaction. Your first reaction is to immediately reclaim or recoup what was lost, as opposed to reassess and reevaluate what you really want to do with your life. And um, you know, particularly today, you know, you're going to likely live to be into your 80s. Who says you need to retire at 65? You know, you could be a 50 year old and reimagine yourself and figure out what the next thing uh, for you is going to be. Because uh, I see a lot of people that are going to try to struggle to keep something afloat that, frankly, should have been put to bed, uh, you know, even before Corona nineteen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely. And are there any campaigns that you've seen um, recently that you think like brands that have done a good job in not taking advantage of the situation, but have harnessed um, what people need and stayed relevant? Yeah, I, I haven't really seen anybody grossly taking advantage of it. Uh, and I think it is also important to remember that there are a lot of businesses that are thriving right now. I have two clients who say that it's better than Black Friday for us. So <laughs> if you're in the grocery space, the pharmaceutical space, the delivery space, or the 
technology, remote learning, distance education, even some of the apps, fitness apps are exploding. So it, it, sometimes it's too easy to paint a brush that everybody's suffering right now. There are a lot of businesses that are doing very, very uh, well. Um, and then of course, there's the ones that um, are, you know, particularly travel and tourism, you look at saying how, God bless you guys, you, you want to do good work, but you're not allowed to because of unprecedented government. Uh, regulation. So we're, we're, so then I think you're left with what you do see is people providing platitudes and trite taglines. I don't see any value in that. I do not need my dentist office sending me an email saying that we're in this together. I do not need mass media commercials and there's some funny memes and videos going around now about the sea of sameness of somber piano music and, you know, uh, lame lines. Um, I, I think they're well-intentioned. It's just, it's meaningless. It's just noise. I, I'd rather you take that money and do something with it besides, you know, mail me a letter or send me an email or do a TV commercial, heaven forbid, saying we're in this together. Um, and then you do see some companies that are doing some remarkable stuff. Um, some COVID really, Tesla making ventilators is pretty remarkable, I think, or Dyson converting their technology into ventilators is pretty remarkable. Unfortunately, we're now learning ventilators are wildly ineffective to fight COVID. So it seems like it's misplaced in their zeal to try to help and in the, politi uh, the pol politicizing of this whole thing. I think we're devoting resources in the wrong place. But then I see somebody like McDonald's creating the thank you meals that are delivered in Happy Meal boxes. I'm like, that's legit, right? Now that's, that's now legitimately adding value while reminding people who you are and what you do, uh, that if you, if you can do something like that, then by all means, uh, do it. Um, otherwise, keep your powder dry and wait for uh, you know, people to be, start buying again. Um, I don't need your, your, um, you know, your virtual hugs, if you will. <laughs> Definitely, the amount of emails that we have now that are just reminding us of the situation are really unnecessary, especially since it's been a month, like we get it. Um, and what have you learned about yourself and your business for Kaltor Camino or everything that you're doing during this time? And what are you going to carry on in the future once this is over? Um, well, like when I, when I think of Camino, I think of tens of thousands of small business people, maybe like yourself, who are very, very good at their craft and who are very, very bad at running a business. Um, and I don't mean like yourself, I don't know anything about this yeah. acumen, but as a creative class in particular, the digital advertising, you know, whether you're a event marketer, a photographer, a videographer, et cetera, I think that we, some, we perhaps have lulled ourselves into thinking that because I'm really good at what I do, I should have my own business. And the reality is, is having a business is a different skill set and is very difficult and um, I'm grateful that um, I consider myself a business person first and a brand strategist second. So uh, cult will be okay, hopefully. I don't think nobody can survive a prolonged depression, uh, but I, we, we, we ran a business that was financially healthy so that we entered this crisis um, you know, with money in the bank and a, already a lean team and already a diversified portfolio. And when I look at my Calgary peers, or even my Edmonton peers, I don't know how they're keeping their head above water because the oil, I mean, zero dollar oil is a bigger problem to this economy than the pandemic is. 
And so to have that one-two punch, and so if you were a business that was heavily focused on the oil and gas sector, you're, you're in really bad shape, right? Colt, was, Colt has always been fairly diversified in the types of uh, industries we serve, but also in the geographies that we serve. So a good chunk of our business, maybe 65% is south of the border. That's great right now, because even though Calgary is in, the, uh, you know, uh, in a ditch, the, the, the foreign exchange rate is actually 25% higher right now. What, what used to be 30 cents on the dollar is now 40 cents on the dollar. So that helps us keep our head above water. But you know, we made that decision eight years ago, not eight right. weeks ago, to go and become relevant to North American uh, brands. And when I look at my Communo clientele, I see a lot of desperation because they had already maxed out their line of credit. They were already overstaffed. So they have to cut much more deeply they were already poorly diversified by industry or by geography. And so you know, just a nice stark reminder that uh, the best way to fight an infection is to be really, don't be a, don't be a smoker, don't be overweight, you know, uh, eat healthy. And so being prepared for a crisis is the best way to get through a crisis. And I certainly didn't predict this, but I did predict that uh, good business principles would dictate they have a rainy day fund. Right. And we didn't know, like you said, it was going to be um, a virus, but in terms of a virus can mean a lot of things that happen to the economy. So, um, okay, last question, which is just not related to any of that, but what is your definition of success? Um, my definition of success is the freedom to be able to spend time on the things that I want to with people that I enjoy doing things with to fulfill my uh, purpose here on earth. <laughs> so um, uh, I don't subscribe to uh, success as a monetary definition, although money is part of mine because money buys freedom and freedom to do things with, you know, to spend the time on the things you want with the people you want to spend time with does require um, a, a, a healthy level of income, but B, also a, a healthy level of um, spending within your means and spending the time on the things that matter most. Um, I actually think it's a great uh, thing for people to ponder more often is what do they define as their success? Because I, I fear people I interact with are chasing other people's dreams for them. Um, you know, a lot of people that own a yacht never really wanted a yacht. They thought that people in their socioeconomic circle deemed yachts as badges or, you know, uh, indicators of success. Uh, it's, you know, second homes, Ferraris, and you can, you can late, you can designer bags, you know, pick, pick your thing. Like, do you really want that because that's what brings you joy or are you doing it as a symbol? Uh, of, of some uh, somebody else's definition of success in our space where we see a lot of that is with the size of an agency i'm successful because i have 50 employees or 100 employees and and that's just a vanity metric that means nothing success is you know your profitability and your willingness to live the life that you want to live and sometimes employees are counterproductive to that achievement of success but you're chasing somebody's perception of the industry values big whereas the industry values expertise and so those are different things so 
Good question. I don't know that I nailed the answer, but I think that there, the more time you spend being honest about what you actually think success is, the sooner you'll go about doing the tough things to make it come to pass. Right. No, I love that. And I think that's very relevant even to right now when people have time to think about what that means to them. Well, amen. I mean, we, we, we work with a home, uh, build, a home buying uh, and selling client and it's fascinating how there's a lot of people who are kind of, remember when the tiny home craze was happening a couple of years yeah. ago? Where are they now when you're being stuck yeah. in your home? How great or bad was that idea? But you know, even your home is probably your single largest purchase of all time. A lot of people are finding, I bought way much more house than I possibly needed. Or I didn't buy nearly a big enough house than I possibly needed as I consider what my actual ambitions are. And uh, when you look at all the factors or variables that would go into that decision, most of them are irrelevant when it comes right. down to the business of it. And, and we're learning that now more than ever, having been stuck in our homes. But there's going to be a lot of people that say, I got to get out of this place, and they'll know exactly what they want to buy in their next home because of what they've learned about themselves in the past six weeks. Totally. I mean, I've been staring at my house, and there are some things I would change about it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that was great. Um, I won't take up any more of your time, but do you want to just tell people where they can find you, connect with you with Cult, Communo, everything? Um, sure. I mean, I, I'm a fairly active uh, ranter on LinkedIn, so you can follow Chris Nealon on LinkedIn. I don't like Twitter. Um, and then our websites would be cultideas.com or communo.com, C-O-M-M-U-N-O. Maybe you can put that in the show notes. Sure. And, uh, and then uh, the gathering is found at cultgathering.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. That was really great. And hopefully we'll be able to meet in person after all of this. <laughs> yes, I look forward to that. Let's go by the pool. <laughs>